Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a public health expert talks about why life expectancy in the United States is falling. You see people become more sedentary, eating more poorly, they represent the, the cumulative effect of, of a host of factors. A gynecologic oncologist discusses the diagnosis and treatment of endometrial cancer. The vast majority of women with endometrial cancer are going to be cured with surgery. It can sometimes be treated with medication or with radiation treatment. And a doctor of physical therapy explains the value of exercise, especially for people with diabetes. For years, we've known that exercise or physical activity is a cornerstone of diabetes care, along with healthy eating, monitoring, and taking medications. All that, along with a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn about endometrial cancer, the most common of the cancers of the female reproductive organs. Then we'll talk with a doctor of physical therapy about how exercise is of particular benefit for people with diabetes. But first, a social scientist and public health expert explores the reasons for a decline in life expectancy in the United States. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A recent study found that life expectancy in the United States is declining and not keeping pace with other wealthy countries. Here to help us understand what is going on is Upstate Medical University's Chair of Public Health and Preventive Medicine, Christopher Morley. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air. Thanks for having me. Why do public health officials look at life expectancy as a measure? Why should we care about that? Well, we should care about that because as an indicator, it shows us uh, a, a rough guide on what's happening um, for uh, within the population. How long you expect to live is, is sort of a good measure for how healthy your population is and what, what you can expect out of life. Now, granted, life expectancy is often adjusted for different, different covariates, um, but in general, um, looking at life expectancy for, for the population as a whole and then looking at subsets within the population is a... Is an interesting way to uh, to keep track of uh, disparities that might be arising between different groups as well, um, and bear in mind that even even though uh, you can tightly control for these things, uh, variables will always come into play. Like uh, high uh, infant mortality rates, for example, will will often pull down a life expectancy rate. Um, uh, and, and different different blips in different parts of the population will affect the overall rate. So it's important to slice and dice into these numbers a little bit to really see what's going on. And when we do that, we get a picture of our society that sometimes tells us both what we need to pay attention to, what we need to fix, as well as uh, tells us a little bit about who we are and what we value. So this study that I'm talking about was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and it found that working-age Americans were less likely to live to retirement age than at any time in recent history. Is that alarming to you? Uh, it is, and as a social scientist myself who studied disparities and, and, and the drivers of disparities, it's particularly alarming because 
Uh, it would be one thing if we had a, a vast and obvious plague that was affecting the country, for example, in one obvious way that, that, that knew no bounds. But even using that term, we've always seen disparities, even historically, in, in the plague. Um, um, those who are least fortunate in society generally uh, suffer the worst when something is going uh, wrong with, with what we do to maintain health or maintain longevity. Um, so, for example, uh, people who are more able to isolate themselves from the population um, were, were, were tended to be more easily uh, uh, missed by the plague than the people who are, uh, you know, in, in among the, the you know, forced into working conditions or living conditions with, with lots of other people. Um, and that's a broad generalization. People who studied the plague and the history of the plague could, could comment on that. But but that plays out today. We see differences in who smokes, for example. We see differences in um, who's affected by, by violence, who's affected by uh, metabolic disorders. Um, so, so these are important things to track. So for this study, uh, researchers apparently, they looked at uh, from 1959 to 2017. So it's a big number of years, more mm -hmm. than 50 years. So in 1959, life expectancy was 69.6 years. In 2014, it was 78.9 years. Those were mm -hmm. years when America was prosperous, right? Mm -hmm. So why are we now seeing shorter lifespans? So I, as, speaking from a very high level, there, there's, there's certainly many uh, and complex uh, reasons for this going on. And, and, uh, and there, there are certainly intersections between causes. But what I would say is that as a society, we've shifted in a number of ways. We've shifted away from um, the single income paradigm, a household, um, at least among, among uh, white middle class America, to, um, to jobs that are both more sedentary, pay lower wages. Um, we're, we're shifting to, from jobs you have for life to uh, jobs where people job hop. Now we're at a stage we're entering an itinerant labor uh, picture for many people, or or or, or the gig economy, as 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 the term is often employed, and uh, that instability combined with the the increase in in a sedentary lifestyle, and additionally, um, the way we eat while we pay attention to food. The fact of the matter is the amount of attention we pay to things like, uh, you know. Whole, whole ingredients or, or, or avoiding processed foods. The fact of the matter is, if you really look at the big picture, those are responses to the fact that we are surrounded by processed food. And very often, many Americans live in, in food deserts where uh, the best access they have is either to fast food or, or processed food from a, from a, a small shop, not um, whole, uh, not whole food, for example, raw vegetables that you cook from scratch. And uh, additionally, people who are working multiple jobs or have multiple uh, complicated lives don't have time to sit around and cook complicated recipes or prepare things. Often, uh, part of the economic picture isn't just the, the monetary cost, but it's the time and effort cost and um, in preparation. Um, so when you combine these factors together, right there you're laying a, a lifestyle change. Additionally, when societies shift economically, and we, we see demographic shifts. We see people who uh, a generation ago would have assumed they could have had a lifelong union job, for example, now uh, working 
uh, in less stable conditions. And you, what you see when you combine all of these things together is the rise in diseases of despair, as, as um, this paper cites in a Brookings study uh, described uh, a number of years ago. Um, diseases of despair include what you might think of as obvious, self-harm or suicide, but diseases of despair also speak to the rise in societal violence, the rise in gun violence, where people uh, turn to violence because uh, nonviolent means of existing are, are closed off. You have people who uh, turn to um, alcohol or, more pressingly, and as we see in society now, to uh, to things like opiates or, or, or other drugs, and the opiate problem is huge. Um, you see people become more sedentary, eating more poorly, having these other factors uh, work in to their lives. Um, you end up with things like increases in diabetes or metabolic disorders, things that affect the system, and they represent um, the, the cumulative effect of, of a host of factors. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking about life expectancy with Christopher Morley, the chair of public health and preventive medicine at Upstate. So this paper talked about and used the term that you just did, um, uh, deaths or diseases of despair, the highest, uh, the top causes of death for people from 25 to 64 were listed as uh, illegal drug overdose, uh, alcoholism, suicide, all of those things. The paper also talked about something called environmental determinants of health. Mm -hmm. What is that? Well, we have an example of that right here in Syracuse, actually. So you had, you had cited a, a life expectancy, which across the country is somewhere, depending on which population you're looking at, which geographic region, for the broad population is usually around 78 to 79 years of age. And when you look within Syracuse, just within the city of Syracuse itself, uh, the, the most recent publicly available uh, Onondaga County uh, Community Health Assessment has some figures on this. Um, so if you look between zip codes, so just place, let's start with the most basic description of the environment, where are you? Um, the 13224 zip code, which is the uh, which covers the area that's right that, that's, that butts right up against the the well-off um, neighborhoods and suburbs of, of DeWitt and, and, and Fayetteville Manlius. Um, that area where, which is populated by a lot of professionals, a lot of professors live in that area. Um, the life expectancy is actually 79.8 years of age. Hmm. So actually a little bit higher than, than state means, a little bit higher than, than, than the national mean. If you go about oh, five miles down the road to what we call uh, the, the, the end, sort of the entranceway, the entrance zip code to the valley where there's a lot of public housing, um, the population is decidedly, um, uh, decidedly different. There, there are many, many more people from minority uh, groups. Um, the, uh, there are, there are fewer, fewer, less, less access to grocery stores. There's more, we, we've measured there's more violence in, that, in, in, in those areas. So in 13205, the life expectancy is 72.6 years. Wow, that's significant. It's a, it's a massive difference five miles apart. Now, what do we see when we look at those, at those different uh, zip codes? Well, environmentally, you see houses that where, where people have done lead abatement versus people living in apartments or, or, or places where, the, where, the, where the, the city or the county can't keep up with inspections. Um, 
and the the, uh, the there's there's lead or there's there's other environmental toxins, to say nothing of the differences in rates of violence in both areas, the rates of of, of violent crime, um, levels of employment, levels of uninsurance, access to care. These vary remarkably between the populations that live five miles apart in, in, in zip codes that are, are, are very close to each other. And it plays out. All of these things add up to uh, cumulatively to, to this, this um, a shorter a sizable, lifespan. to wow. a shorter expect, life expectancy. Yeah. We've, you mentioned environmental and geographic factors. How much of a nation's life expectancy is tied to its health care delivery? So while that's an area I work on, and I do think it's important, uh, not much. Uh, so historically, public health uh, triumphs started at the last century with doing things like um, cleaning up the water supply. And uh, when, when, you, when you don't have babies dying from diarrheal disease because the, because the water they're drinking or the, that, they're, that they're bathed in is cleaner, um, it has a tremendous impact on life expectancy. Um, the, the creation of vaccines on a population level. So at that point, you've got the healthcare system working, but, but doing a very specific and, and preventive, targeted, right. targeted uh, intervention. That's, that's had a tremendous uh, in, impact on, on how we think about infectious diseases, along with the development of effective um, antimicrobial drugs, um, have tremendous impacts on, on, um, on life expectancy. And that sees the entrance of, of the healthcare system. Really, what the best things we can do to, pr- to improve life expectancy is get people doing these quick interventions that, that take care of themselves preventively. We often focus on healthcare access as though what people need are access to high-tech cures when really the prevention of getting sick in the first place or the prevention of, of injury or, or other uh, things that are, are incompatible with life, let's say, is, uh, is, is really um, an outpatient primary care focus or even a population level focus where we, we do things that aren't even necessarily healthcare, like make sure that lead is removed or do population level uh, tobacco control or, or, or screening or vaccine dissemination, things that are either not healthcare at all or quick, um, quick interventions that are preventive in nature. Do we need to target these um, diseases of despair? It, or, or are there things that we can do to intervene to improve the outcome for people that are dealing with those issues? So I, I think there are multiple levels of, of resp- with responsibility and intervention. Um, as a society, we do need to address um, the fact that, that we're shifting and that, that as, as our workforce and our, our, our expectations from life change, people will have different expectations about not just the, the provision of their health care, where they're, where they're getting health care or who's paying for it, but what they're going to be doing for a living, what they're, uh, whether, whether they're going to be working into retirement or whether they're not going to have a retirement um, or whether they're going to be laid off early, whether they're going to be uh, doing physical versus sedentary labor. These are all things that we have to address along with demographic shifts in who we are and who makes us up. We need to recognize that when those shifts happen, often there are, there are, there are shifts in, in life expectancy as well. Um, and the things that cause those problems are often linked to a reaction behaviorally. We need to get a handle on, on the, the, the 
opiate crisis, which is a crisis, and you mentioned something about illegal drugs, often the things that people are doing aren't illegal. So prescriptions or formerly people who, who, who have found their way to opiate addiction or abuse through a, a prescription pathway um, needs, to be, needs to be addressed. Now, that doesn't mean people don't rely presently on opiates in some cases, and, and having a knee-jerk reaction to restricting pain access can, can have other uh, downstream impacts. So, for example, if you, if you regulate pretty, uh, pretty manageable things like hydrocodone and start making it difficult for people, the people who are most or are least well-off, most in danger of, of, of experiencing a healthcare disparity, are going to, just to relieve their own pain, potentially turn to other pathways to, to relieve that pain, which are not healthy. So we need to have very careful responses. In the case of opiates, that's one direction. And another example is that we actually had, we're beating back tobacco and uh, tobacco usage and smoking. The populations that were most uh, uh, addicted and the highest users of tobacco were still um, lower income, lower, lower socioeconomic status, lower, uh, lower education segments of the population, and frankly, people who, who were self-medicating things like, like anxiety, depression, ADHD with nicotine um, through cigarette usage, we, we had beaten that back and we'd reached that sort of hardcore bottom where we had to come up with new interventions for them, but we were, we were winning. Vaping and electronic cigarette usage has, uh, in some ways, people were, were wondering if this would be a harm reduction strategy, but as it turns out, it's either a gateway that people end up using, switching between products, or they um, they they try to quit using vaping and they, they don't. And they end up using both products, and then vaping itself is turning out to have all sorts of health consequences. So we've actually reversed course in some of these things. And the third thing you had mentioned is alcohol use. Alcohol is legal, right. so we have things that aren't illegal that are, that are doing things that we can we can think a lot harder about on an individual level. We need to think about the safety of our neighborhoods. Um, where the rich versus the poor live. Um, we need to think about walkable neighborhoods, safe neighborhoods, neighborhoods that are free from gun violence. Guns are also legal and accessible in most parts of the country. Um, we need to think about um, economic uh, revitalization for people who are displaced by economic trends and shifts. Um, and on the individual level, people can watch out for how they're being affected. They can understand that if they now have a sedentary job or they, are, they, are, uh, they don't have access to food, that this takes individual effort. Now that's really hard for people to do, especially if, you've, if you're dealing with other life challenges. So I'm always hesitant to put the onus on the individual when, when society is shifting around them. But there are things we can do and be cognizant about making sure we're, we're, we're moving, making sure we're, we're eating uh, foods that are a little closer to the source and a little bit healthier and avoiding processed foods. We're trying to quit smoking. We don't abuse alcohol. We, we, we're careful with our pain meds and so forth. People can take a little bit of individual responsibility on that regard. So it's not all hopeless, but we do need as a society to think about this because this is bigger than in the individual. Well, thank you so much. My guest has been Christopher Morley. He's chair of public health and preventive medicine at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, 
the signs and symptoms of endometrial cancer every woman needs to know. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Endometrial cancer is the most common cancer of the female reproductive organs. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about its diagnosis and treatment is Upstate Medical University Division Chief for Gynecologic Oncology, Dr. Mary Cunningham. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Cunningham. Good morning. Let's start with a definition of what is endometrial cancer. Well, endometrial cancer is a cancer that starts in the lining of the uterus, which is called the endometrium. So the uterus is the organ that um, where a baby grows, and the endometrium is the cavity on the inside of the uterus where the baby develops. Um, cancers can start in other areas of the uterus, but the most common area for cancers to start is in the endometrium, in that lining portion. And is this a common type of cancer? Do you see it that often? Well, we do. It's the most common gynecologic cancer, and it actually happens in about 3% of women. So about, about 1 in 30, 1 in 33 women will develop endometrial cancer over the course of their life. Now, from what I understand, endometrial cancer can be detected early because it frequently produces abnormal vaginal bleeding. But can you explain to me what is normal and abnormal for vaginal bleeding? Sure. Well, one of the the most common age group for endometrial cancer to occur is in women who have already gone through menopause. And I find that one of the things that's confusing for women is what's when is bleeding normal versus abnormal around the time of menopause. Medically, we define menopause as having no periods for a whole year. So once there have been no periods for a year, then any bleeding after that, even if it's just a little bit and even if it's just one time, is abnormal. Oh. But the other thing I'd like to, I'd like to just um, point out is that around the time of menopause, there really are, are two common normal patterns for menopause. One is that bleeding becomes lighter and lighter and lighter and then just stops, but the periods are still regular during that time. And the other, the other common pattern is that women start skipping periods. So they might have a normal period now and then skip two months and have another normal period and then skip another two or three months. And gradually the time in between periods gets longer and longer. And the periods might be slighter, slightly heavier than normal, but they shouldn't be terribly long with lots of blood clots or lots of irregular bleeding. That kind of bleeding isn't normal at any age. So that is something to ask your doctor about. Absolutely. And if a woman hasn't gone through menopause by the time she's in her mid to late 50s, she needs to see her gynecologist and make sure that everything's okay. Okay. Now, aside from bleeding, are there other symptoms to be aware of? Well, the most common is abnormal bleeding, and most people have abnormal bleeding and otherwise feel fine. And this is where it gets a little, a little sneaky because a woman can have a little bit of spotting for a couple of days and otherwise feel fine, and that's the only sign that there's a cancer developing. Um, sometimes women will have some pelvic pressure or pelvic pain, um, but that's much less common. So how quickly does a woman need to act if she sees some abnormal bleeding? Is that an emergency room visit, or is that a check with your doctor? Generally speaking, that's a, that's a call to your doctor. Um, if you have a gynecologist, that's a call to your gynecologist. 
if you don't have a gynecologist to call to your primary care and then they will start the evaluation and get you hooked up with a gynecologist if, if necessary. So what does the evaluation consist of? What kind of tests could a woman expect? So initially, uh, the evaluation would be uh, an examination. Um, so going into the office and having a pelvic examination to make sure that everything appears normal. Not all abnormal bleeding is from endometrial cancer. There are lots of other reasons to have some abnormal bleeding, and a lot of them are really nothing to, nothing to worry about. So it, the evaluation is going to start off with doing a pelvic examination and then oftentimes doing an ultrasound to look at the, at the thickness and the contour of the endometrial lining, as well as doing a biopsy or doing a DNC. You mentioned D and C. What can you explain that term? Sure. Um, that's a so when we're trying to diagnose an endometrial cancer, we want to get some tissue from the cavity up inside the uterus. So sometimes we can do that by by sliding a small suction device into the uterus in the office, but in some women that's not possible or it's too uncomfortable, and so we go into the operating room and do a dilation and curettage, which is abbreviated D and C where we give the patient some anesthesia and open the cervix a little bit so that we can put in a camera and put in instruments to take some biopsies. Then the pathologist can look at them under the microscope. Can you visualize, can you see the cancer in the endometrium? We can't see it at a pelvic examination. If we do a DNC, we can put a small camera up inside the uterus. It's called a hysteroscope. And with that device, we can actually look at the lining of the uterus. So it actually looks different where the cancer is? It can, but the diagnosis is really made um, on a biopsy that's sent to the pathologist. So it's looked at under the microscope by the pathologist. So is endometrial cancer, is that um, a fast-growing cancer that you need to act quickly with? Well, we don't really... um, diagnose a cancer, and then wait to see how fast it grows. So how fast a cancer grows is always um, a little bit tricky to answer. But I think that um, this is the sort of situation where if a woman's having notices that she's having bleeding after menopause, she should not wait to call um, because um, the value, the, there's really no benefit and a lot of risk to waiting to see if it comes back. Um, This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Mary Cunningham. She's the Division Chief of Gynecologic Oncology at Upstate, and we're talking about endometrial cancer. So I wanted to talk about uh, the treatment options. Um, Most of the time this is caught early, hopefully. That's right. What are the options then if a woman, um, if the biopsy comes back positive? So the vast majority of women with endometrial cancer are going to be cured with surgery. This is, this is cancer of the uterus, and the treatment usually is to remove the uterus, which is a hysterectomy. Okay. okay. And that gets rid of the cancer? In most cases, yes. And in most women, they've, they're already through menopause or around the time of menopause, so they've already completed having their children. So okay. there, are, there are other options for women who are very young and haven't had children. There are some cases where we can treat without doing a hysterectomy. And for women who are elderly and maybe uh, aren't able to go through surgery because of other medical problems, 
it can sometimes be treated with medication or with radiation treatment. Uh, medication being like chemotherapy? Medication actually being a hormone treatment. Oh, These okay. are usually hormonally active uh, cancers. So, D- Does uh, endometrial cancer tend to spread to other organs? For most women at the time of diagnosis, it's in the endometrium and possibly in the muscle that forms the wall of the uterus. But again, if you remove the uterus, the muscle goes too, right? That's correct. That's correct. So in most women... The, the disease is confined to the uterus at the time of diagnosis. But it can spread into the cervix. It can spread into the lymph nodes. And then from there, it can also spread into other distant areas, the lungs, the bone, etc. But that's much less common. Are there any other types of treatment sort of on the horizon that you're aware of? So the, the biggest innovation that's happened in endometrial cancer treatment in the last couple of years is what's called a sentinel node dissection. And um, what that entails um, is a way of identifying the most important lymph nodes to take out at the time of surgery. So previously, we would take out large groups of lymph nodes because we didn't know for an individual person which lymph node might be the best one to take out. And this allows us to individualize for for the vast majority of patients and just take out a few of the most important lymph nodes instead of taking out large groups of lymph nodes. Are the lymph nodes located close to the uterus? The ones that we take out? Yes, um, for the most part. Now, some of them um, are located higher up in the abdomen around the aorta and vena cava. And there are actually some women in whom those are the most important lymph nodes to take out. So doing the sentinel node dissection helps us tailor the operation to the individual person. Okay. All right. Great. Well, do we have ideas about the cause of endometrial cancer? I think in the beginning you said um, one in three women may end About up- one in 30. One in 30. Mm-hmm. Um, do we know which one out of 30 can we predict? Well, so the general population risk is about 1 in 30, but the biggest risk factor for endometrial cancer in the United States is being obese or overweight. Um, If you're 30 pounds overweight, it's estimated that your risk of endometrial cancer is tripled. So it's a huge increase in risk. And when they've they've done studies of which cancers, which cancer risks go up in, in people who are overweight, or obese, endometrial cancer is always at the top of the list. Now, why would that be? Why would my weight have anything to do with my uterus? Well, it turns out that other hormones that are in your body are converted into estrogen in fat cells. So the more fat cells you have, the more estrogens your body is producing. And these tumors are are in large part caused by very high levels of estrogen in your system. And as the nation has seen an increase in obesity over the past few decades, have we seen a rise in endometrial cancer as well? Well, we have, and the average patient who comes in with endometrial cancer is is obese. Okay. Yeah. Well, are there other factors besides weight? Sure, and not everybody who develops endometrial cancer is obese or overweight. Okay. Um, there are, the other major thing that we, that we 
like to make sure that people are aware of is that it's important to be aware of family history. And endometrial cancer occurs in some cases due to a gene that also can increase the risk of colon cancer. So colon cancer and endometrial cancer and sometimes ovarian cancer and breast cancer can all be due to the same genetic abnormality. So if a patient has a large number of family members who've had colon cancer, especially colon cancer at younger ages, um, they need to be they need to be uh, aware of the risk of endometrial cancer. In terms of someone um, who's treated for this, um, do you do you say cured when you do the hysterectomy and it's removed and they don't have endometrial cancer? Is that considered that they're cured? Well, cure is if you live the rest of your life and your cancer never comes back. Okay. So, and that happens for about 80% of women overall with endometrial cancer. For the women who have um, cancer where it's just in the uterus at the time of diagnosis, it's about 90% will be cured of the cancer. So there is some that it may return? It may. And so we watch people carefully for about five years after the operation. Now, if you've removed the uterus, how can it come back? Does it appear in another organ nearby? Well, yeah, cancers come back not because of the cells that we have removed and sent to the lab. Um, cancers come back because there are individual cells that are too small for us to see that have escaped from the initial area that, that they were located. So the areas that we worry about endometrial cancers coming back are at the top of the vagina and in the pelvic area. Um, those are the two most common areas. It can less commonly come back at other in other areas as well. If someone um, has been diagnosed with endometrial cancer, does that mean she has a greater risk for colon cancer or breast cancer or another type of cancer? So in general, women who or anybody who's had a cancer diagnosis is at a higher risk of developing a second cancer. Because there are some of the same genetic um, risk factors and hormonal risk factors, women with endometrial cancer do have a somewhat higher risk of colon cancer and breast cancer. So they need to be vigilant Absolutely. for those. Colonoscopies and mammograms. Is that some of, you said you, that you follow them for at least five years after. Is Correct. that some of what is being done during those five years? We do, we do um, their surveillance for colon cancer and for breast cancer. And we also do careful examinations to make sure that there's no sign that there's any recurrence. Now, is there anything a woman needs to do different in terms of like diet or lifestyle after she's been diagnosed and treated for endometrial cancer? Well, so, um, you know, maintaining a healthy weight is helpful at any age. And that's helpful in women who have had endometrial cancer as well as in people who have not. Um, so all of those healthy lifestyle things are the, are the main things that we recommend. All right. Well, that's great advice. I want to say thank you to Dr. Mary Cunningham. She's a professor of obstetrics and gynecology and the division chief of gynecologic oncology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, why people with diabetes need to exercise. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you or a loved one have diabetes, you probably realize the importance of monitoring blood sugar and insulin levels. But do you know how important exercise can be? With me in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about the benefits of exercise in diabetes is Karen Chemis. She's a doctor of physical therapy, a registered nurse, and a certified diabetes educator at Upstate, and she's also the president of the American Association of Diabetes Educators. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Chemis. Thank you. So let's talk about why diabetes education is part of or should be part of the care for someone who has diabetes. When someone has diabetes, well over 99% of their care is self-care. So a person goes to see a healthcare provider just but for a short period of time throughout the whole year. All the rest of the time, that person is trying to help themselves. So it's important to get guidance on how to best do that to be healthy. So they're learning really how to manage their disease, but really their, their daily life. Absolutely. There's so many things during a day that an individual has to think about to try to be healthy with diabetes. Well, today I'd like to talk a little about exercise and what role that has for someone who has diabetes. Great. That's certainly my area. For years, we've known that exercise or physical activity is a cornerstone of diabetes care, along with healthy eating, monitoring, and taking medications. In fact, I work at the Joslin Diabetes Center, and it's been said that Dr. Elliot Joslin, who practiced endocrinology back in the 1920s, was known to go to the dog pound and get a puppy for his patients because they were more likely to walk the puppy than themselves. So he knew a hundred years ago how important physical activity and exercise was in helping an individual manage their diabetes. And even something as simple as walking a puppy. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you, do we know, like, what does it actually do in the body? Does it, does exercise make the pancreas work better or what does it do? There's, there's two big things that exercise does. The first one that's easiest to understand is we use our food as energy to do our exercise. So it's like putting gas in the car. When we eat food, it's like putting gas in the tank, and then we need to drive the car to use up that energy. So when we eat food, it's important to be physically active to use up those calories. And those calories include glucose, which would raise our blood glucose if we didn't use it. The second thing that we know that exercise does is it helps our body to use insulin better. So insulin is necessary to allow the foods that we eat, glucose, to get into our cells so they can be used as fuel. In one challenge specifically with people with type 2 diabetes is the insulin doesn't work as well. It can't unlock the door of the cell to let the glucose go in. Exercise regularly actually helps the body to unlock those sites on the cells and in fact more sites, receptor sites, are created. So if somebody's cell is struggling to let insulin do its job, they'll get more insulin receptor sites so that the glucose can go into the cell and we can burn it for fuel. So will the person actually feel better when this is happening? 
I don't think they'll notice, but when we exercise, we do tend to feel better if we choose the right exercise. You know, a lot of people will struggle to get started. Oh, I know I should go for a walk, but I'm just not up to it. And then, you know, five or 10 minutes into the walk, people will think, well, what was the big deal? This feels great. So I think there certainly is research to show that exercise can help with depression, anxiety, and dealing with diabetes can cause diabetes distress and exercise can help with that. So if people pick the right exercise, the right amount, the right intensity, they should feel better, more relaxed, and feel like they've accomplished something. Now, exercise can help a person lose weight. What does a person's weight, what impact does it have on diabetes? Like if if someone weighs a lot and then they start losing weight, will that affect the disease? Yes, it can. So one of the big risk factors for type 2 diabetes is being overweight or obese. And it's especially challenging for our body when this overweightness is held around the midsection. So if we carry our weight in our belly, that gets in the way of our body helping our heart to work well and certainly with diabetes helping our body use insulin well. So if somebody does get physically active, decrease their food intake and they can lose weight, especially around the waist, the body actually can use insulin better and it decreases either the risk of diabetes or it can decrease um, the body's need for medication with diabetes. So it really is incredibly helpful. It's challenging to do, but it can be helpful if we're successful at it. And I think one really important thing is an individual doesn't have to lose 40 or 50 or 100 pounds to do better. Even with a 5 to 10 pound weight loss, our body already starts functioning better. So that's really, really important. It's a lot easier to think about being successful when we think small increments at a time. Sure. Well, this may be a little bit controversial, but can exercise cure diabetes? It is controversial, and I think it's just how we define the cure. So a lot of people um, may think that if I don't take a medication, then my diabetes is cured. Once an individual gets diagnosed, essentially they would carry that diagnosis, but Exercise can help to minimize what the body needs to help as far as using insulin. So an individual might see a decrease in the amount of medication they need, or if they use insulin, they may see a decrease in the amount of insulin. I do think it's really, really important, though, that everybody realizes that bodies are different. So somebody can be really physically active and be doing all the right things and still need medication, be it pills or insulin, to help their body work well. So they just need to appreciate that that's what they need. It's not a bad thing. We want to do whatever we can to help our blood glucoses be in target ranges so that we can be healthy. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking about diabetes education with Doctor of Physical Therapy, Karen Chemis. What advice do you have for someone who's newly diagnosed with diabetes and has never exercised? How do they get started? This is a really great time for an individual to get started. It tends to be a bit of a wake-up call for people. A lot of people maybe know that they had risk factors, but once they get that diagnosis, many people are so motivated. So I think is any exercise program that somebody's starting, start slow, be careful, choose the right thing, 
pay attention to your body. So if somebody's never been physically active, then maybe doing something, as you mentioned at the beginning, as simple as going for a walk, starting with 10 minutes at a time, increasing to 12 minutes, then 14 minutes, or getting on a stationary bike, or going to a gym and starting, but not being overzealous about it. Because people that do too much all at once can tend to get injured, dislike the exercise, and then it's easy to fall off the wagon. So start slow, be careful, listen to your body. Now, I know there are guidelines for the amount of exercise that adults should get on a weekly basis. Do those same guidelines apply to people with diabetes or do they need more or less? The guidelines are exactly the same. So when I work with an individual with diabetes, I'll say, you know, these are the recommendations for everybody. It doesn't mean it's easy, but they're the same across the board for American adults. So the guidelines are to do 150 minutes total of moderately paced exercise per week or 75 minutes of vigorous exercise per week. And then the second piece of the recommendation is to do strength training. So the guidelines for that are to do two to three days per week of strength training not two days in a row because the body needs recovery and we should do one to three sets of an exercise and we should do about eight to ten repetitions to fatigue so if I'm doing a particular exercise my muscle is tired by that eighth to tenth repetition and then we rest for a half a minute or a minute do a second set and then a third set and then go on to the next exercise well we've talked about the importance of starting easy and working into it. If you if if you have diabetes, does it mean that you're limited in doing, I don't know, marathon training or things that are higher intensity? Not at all. So I have had patients that I've worked with that have done such things. It doesn't mean everybody should aim for that. But um, if somebody has diabetes and they are going to start exercising more vigorous than their everyday activities, they should consult with their healthcare provider to just make sure that that makes sense. And generally what the healthcare provider will most look at is their heart health. So if somebody's heart is strong and they have low risk factors for heart problems, they can do vigorous exercise or activities. If the provider sits with a person and evaluates things and possibly a person has a stress test and it's determined they should do lower intensity, then they'll be prescribed based on that. One really easy way to determine if we're exercising at a moderate, safe level during aerobic exercise is to do the talk test. So if I'm walking or on a stationary bike, if I can carry a conversation without being short of breath, that's moderate paced. My heart's keeping up with it. It's not asking the lungs for more oxygen. I'm not short of breath. But if I'm exercising more vigorously, where I'm short of breath and I have to take in a breath every few words, that's vigorous exercise. In somebody newly diagnosed or with a diagnosis of diabetes and heart risk should exercise below that level. So if someone is taking uh, insulin, um, should they exercise before they take insulin or right afterward, or does it matter? It doesn't matter as much as it used to because our insulins that we can inject are so similar to how the body's own insulin works. So generally people can exercise 
most times we don't have to be as careful about that. Some people find that they naturally get a bit of a rise in blood sugar early in the morning upon awakening. So this may be a nice time to exercise. It's a good time to fit it in and there's rest, less risk of low blood sugar. And then otherwise, an individual would kind of, you know, watch what their body typically does day to day, see if they're at risk of lows. If they're not, then any time is good. If they are, they may need to decrease the insulin that's working at that time because the exercise makes up for it. Or some people will need to take in a bit of a carbohydrate prior to the exercise. If people aren't using insulin or taking the pills that make our body produce more insulin, there's a really low risk of low blood sugars, so that makes it a little bit easier. Well, I wanted to ask you about whether there are any precautions, and if someone with diabetes works out with uh, you know, a loved one, are there things that the loved ones should be on the lookout for to make sure there's no problems happening with the person with diabetes? Yes, yeah, so if somebody does use insulin or those medications that make our body produce more insulin, there are so many different symptoms that could suggest a low blood sugar, but an individual usually has pretty consistent symptoms. So if they just start to act differently, um, a cold sweat, shaking, getting pale, being confused, getting tired acting, then it could be a low blood sugar. And hopefully the person with them knows how to help them get in some fast-acting carbohydrate to help that. The other thing is a risk of heart problems. Unfortunately, people with diabetes do carry a bit of an increased risk of heart problems, so we always have to be aware of those symptoms. And they might not be the typical symptoms we think of. Sometimes it's that somebody gets overly sweaty, gets some nausea, those could be symptoms of a heart problem. So if a person starts to act differently or doesn't feel well, they should absolutely stop exercising and you know try to determine if it's heart or low blood sugar and certainly call for emergency help if they're not sure. Before we go, I want to ask you about uh, the diabetes education in terms of if someone is listening to this and they have diabetes, but they've never talked to a diabetes educator, how do they go about finding someone? Do they need a referral from their doctor? A referral is helpful because insurance will cover the service. So most people would want to coordinate that care with their provider and get the referral. And then they should contact a diabetes educator. We have practices in Syracuse that have diabetes educators. And the way to find out in your area is to go to the American Association of Diabetes Educators website, which is all one word, diabeteseducator.org. And then put in, you know, there's a search for finding a diabetes educator in your area, and that would be an accredited program, so you would know that you're getting good quality care from that individual. Well, thank you so much to Karen Chemis, a doctor of physical therapy and a certified diabetes educator at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Bridget Meads describes an unexpected encounter in her poem titled Exit at Triphammer. You were not easy to love, sprawled off the off-ramp dirt, March rain from above darkening your stained shirt. 
I parked the car and walked back, calling help. Is he alert? Needle in arm, arm with tracks, the red and orange lights encroaching. You are what the world lacks. The sky was full of birds approaching. You will not see their flight, nor rain ceasing, the light reproaching. I paused, looked left, then right. The delay in my day was slight. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.